following episode reviews part two of the three-part true crime documentary series, Murder Among the Mormons. The documentary recounts a series of bombings that took the lives of two people in the fall of 1985 in Salt Lake City, Utah. No hosts of the Rotten or Righteous podcast mean any disrespect to the victims or their families. Because of the mature subject content and discussion of real-life violent crimes, the following episode may not be suitable for small children. Listener discretion is advised. Today, on a super serious true crime edition of the Rotten or Righteous podcast, we ask a super serious true crime question. Here, have some food. <laughs> Ow, why? Why'd you do that? They knew you deserved it. I'm ready. I'm ready. I converted to Mormonism. Did I tell you? Did you? I'm so proud of you. Yep. Yep, sure did. Welcome to Rotten or Righteous, the podcast that has the biggest afro that you've ever seen on a white lady. With me today, as <laughs> always... <laughs> <laughs> it is I, Joseph Smith. It's not, but it is Luke Taylor, who's pretty adept with a butterfly knife. Yeah. He loves Luke. He loves looking at cracked ink, Scott Judge. And I'm Zach Geiler, but whenever I buy metal etchings to counterfeit historical documents, I do so under the name Skippy Winchester. Ah, nice. Before we begin, it's been a while since we uh, uh, have done this segment, but I came across a headline that was just too good uh, to pass up. And so, get ready for our first in what seems like 20 weeks, uh, our first edition of Stupid News. Oh, no! Oops. Stupid news. <laughs> you guys are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This week's headline. Alabama woman accused of stealing neighbor's goat, dying at blue. <laughs> Let me send you a picture of this <laughs> of this goat. <laughs> You know, I, I was really expecting you to say a lot of things at the end of that sentence. Dying the goat blue was not one of them. If you look on your uh, Facebook page right now, you'll see a picture of the <laughs> titular goat. Oh, that's just like a little baby goat. Uh-huh. And it's very blue. It is yes. very blue. People do that to their dogs all the time. How's that even a crime? Well, that's the thing. It's their dogs. It's... Well, that goat probably likes being blue. It's a little different when it's somebody else's dog that you dye blue. An Alabama woman was arrested Sunday on accusations that she stole a neighbor's baby goat and painted the animal blue, according to authorities. Erica Marie Farmer, 34, of Gulf Shores, was charged with cruelty to animals and second-degree theft of property. She was booked at the Baldwin County Jail and released the same day after posting a $1,000 bail. The theft charge is a felony 
according to Fox 10 and Mobile. What? It is a felony to steal someone's goat. I feel like that's a law that like uh, was put on the books maybe like 100 or 200 years ago because it's like a high high price theft. Mm-hmm. But now now it's like hey, just she, she may end up doing some serious time for this hard labor. I don't know about the motives of this. Uh, well, this let's woman. see. Let's see if it tells us. Sheriff's deputies told the news station that farmer is accused of removing the goat from a neighbor's yard on Saturday and taking it to her uncle's home where she was visiting to show her child. While the animal was in her possession, she decided to paint it blue. Farmer then posted the photos online. Authorities <laughs> said... <laughs> I love... <laughs> <laughs> Who just decides I got this goat Because I... <laughs> it started out Innocently enough right Look here's yeah. this baby animal I want to show it to my kid I don't understand where it gets to the point where Honey look at this baby goat too Yeah I'm going to paint this thing blue <laughs> Authorities said The goat owner Or the goat's owner found it missing And called another neighbor asking if they'd seen it Fox 10 reported. The neighbors showed the owner the photo or the photos on social media. The owner identified by the news station as Natasha Harris called the sheriff's office. I mean, this is the biggest case <laughs> that Gulf Shore has seen in a generation. If somebody painted your goat blue, would you would you call the police? No, I would sit there and spend at least the next two days asking why. Because if you look, not only did they paint it blue, but the horns on it was painted like a... (laughs) (laughs) Like Like unicorns. Like a weird spiral color. I mean, they put some detail and work on this goat. Farmer told WKRG and Mobile that the incident began as a prank on her cousin who, who, who had recently gotten a new baby goat. What? How? <laughs> what was the prank? <laughs> what? The blue, the blue goat. Uh, hey, look, I painted this goat blue. Oh, I wish you wouldn't have done that to my goat. Don't worry, it's a stranger goat. <laughs> she said when she spotted Harris's goat roaming the neighborhood, she started playing with it and feeding it grapes and cucumbers. She then decided to show the animal to her daughter, who she said is, quote, obsessed with goats, end quote. She then returned it where she found it. Harris admitted to Fox 10 on Tuesday that her goats are allowed to roam freely around her rural home. Ah, free-range goats. She also said that the charges stem from a misunderstanding and she wants them dropped. I thought kids held down my goat, and they were mean to him, Harris said. That's all I could think about. No, and kids didn't. Just this 34-year-old woman did. That makes it better. That's okay. <laughs> she said she was concerned when she came home Saturday night and found the goat missing. When it was back home, but painted the next morning, she grew angry, thinking teens in the neighborhood had tried to harm it. Harris said she realized her mistake after seeing news stories about Farmer's arrest. She, she said she reached out to Farmer, who said the dye job was just a prank 
accomplished with shampoo and food coloring. The two women have since become friends. (laughs) 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 (sighs) Nothing. Alabama. Nothing creates a stronger (laughs) bond between two women than a dyed goat. (laughs) This is so stupid. A blue goat. I told her I was sorry. And I'd do anything to help her get the charges off of her, Harris told the station. Now I know my goat was just died. There was no harm. He's fine. He's running around. Now both Harris and Farmer are hoping the Baldwin County District Attorney will drop the charges. I'm really sorry for wasting your time. And I hope you'll see that this was a misunderstanding and drop the case, please, Farmer said. In a plea she hoped would fall on authorities' ears. District Attorney Bob Wilters told the station that even if Harris has changed her mind, his office still has to review the case before determining whether or not to prosecute. Meanwhile, (laughs) Bob Wilters has just been waiting for a case, any case, at all. He's Uh like, finally, three people in this county, two of them involved in this goat theft. I'm not letting this go without a fight. (laughs) So... Happy ending. Is it? Oh, no. Oops. Episode two begins with picturesque B-roll of a Salt Lake City ski slope. As Bilbo Baggins tells us that he moved to the city in 1978 after being... Dr- or after being... Dr- After flunking out of college, somehow Bilbo, also known as Jerry D'Ila, was a lawyer. I don't understand how he can say he flunked out of college. And then the next sentence he says, so I'm a lawyer. Don't know how that works. That point was very unclear. He's a Republican lawyer in Utah who flunked out of school with, he said, a 0.6 grade point average. And still became a lawyer. He's working prosecution. I don't know. Well done, This was a great start to this documentary, by the way, part two. He he really did look like Bilbo. He looked like he was about (laughs) to go. He looked like he was about to leave the Shire on a great adventure. (laughs) So, So Jerry came to Salt Lake City for two things. One, to grow a mustache that was amazing. And two, to ski. And he was a lawyer on the side. <laughs> Jerry Isla is probably the most fascinating person in the entire world right now. I, I just want to sit agree. down with Jerry for a minute. Um, and, and we get to learn a little bit about Jerry as... Uh, as he is a, a main player in this second part of the story. A Salt Lake or, or as Salt Lake City Chief Investigator, Mike George tells us that Jerry Deila is brash and outspoken. In other words, he's not a Mormon, so he doesn't fit into the Salt Lake City mold. One morning, a hungover Jerry <laughs> I like I, 
I, I love this first scene because Jerry's like, look, I'm sitting in the office. I'm hungover from the night before. And then I get news that there's an explosion. And my first thought is, yeah, it's a beautiful day for a bombing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's October 15th, 1985, which, as we know from the last episode, was the first day of the bombings. Jerry arrives at the location of the first bomb, the judge's building, uh, the bomb that killed Steve Christensen. And as a prosecutor, he says he's there to kind of just take in the carnage and destruction. And so he can create a mental picture that he can draw on later as he's arguing the case in court. And we see the pictures of the bodies again and the carnage. But Jerry really just wants us to, to truly see what he saw. And he's like, listen, I was staring at this guy's open chest cavity for a good 15, 20 minutes really trying to get this picture into my head. Thanks, Jerry, Jerry. Do you need a hug, buddy? I feel like Jerry needs a hug. But he's only there for about 10 minutes when news of the second bombing reaches his ears. And that second bombing, of course, killed Christensen's associate, Gary Sheets' wife. The bomb was meant for Gary Sheets, but killed Kathy Sheets instead. And Jerry tells us about the feeling that day, how the DA's office and the police had no leads, multiple bombings, and they were worried about someone else getting injured or killed. Then we move on to the next day, October 16th, 1985, day two of the bombings. We see more footage of Mark Hoffman's car. It's where we left off the last episode. Mark Hoffman's car was exploded in a car bomb and firefighters are spraying down the smoldering wreckage as paramedics work to save Mark's life. Now, this is all caught on news footage, and we get a glimpse of Mark, and we we mentioned last week how he looked really good for somebody who was just in a car bomb. He didn't look really good when he was laying there on the grass uh, and having all those people work on mm-hmm. him. Uh, so they, it was a scary scene. And we also get a real treat here. Because we get to see old news footage of the famous Mormon Superman himself. The man who was first to the scene. This guy who looks like 80s incarnate. (laughs) With his big old glasses and his polyester sweatsuit on. He's talking talking to the reporter and he's like, I was there first. And I ran up to Mark, pulled out my consecrated oil that I just have in my pocket in case of emergencies, and I looked down at him and said, I command you to live. So basically, I saved his life. From now on, first question I ask whenever I go meet a surgeon or a doctor or anybody who will be operating on my life, are you a Mormon? And if they say yes, I'm going to pass. Say, with all due respect, I need someone who knows how to apply pressure to a gaping wound in order to staunch the bleeding and not just going to sprinkle some Crisco on my head and say, you better live. Well, it worked, didn't it? Yeah, it was the the oil. That was what did it, not the paramedics that got there uh, uh, right afterwards. That that guy, that that wigged me out a little bit, that scene right there. I mean, that... I saw he had the LDS apparel once, and it, I knew he was knew he was Mormon. And I grabbed the oil, and I'm like, I'm watching this, going, this is just bonkers. This is nuts. You really think you can do this? 
With all, all due respect, I don't want you to grab the oil. I want you to figure out wherever I'm bleeding from and apply some pressure. And apply pressure. Yeah. Maybe maybe tie a tourniquet or two. I mean, if you got to bust out the oil after you stop the bleeding, whatever, man. You do you. But yep. when you first get there, if you're and and I realize just how much of a how much of a a, a jerk I can be because my first thought was if anyone commanded me to to live. I would just die to spite them. <laughs> you would too. That is one hundred percent accurate. <laughs> no, I'm serious. If a no, Mormon, I know you are. If a Mormon you ran know. up to me on the street after I was bombed in a car, they're like, "I command you to live," and be like, "You command me, huh? Is that what you want? Don't tell me what to do." <laughs> <laughs> well, Kelsey, he could be here, but the guy with the oil ticked him off. But in the trunk of Mark Hoffman's car, they found the charred remains of the McClellan collection, the reported documents that contained detrimental information to the history and the historical narrative of the Latter-day Saint Church. Investigators then learn that the president of the church, Gordon Hinckley, met with Hoffman to buy the collection. And so their first lead was... Somebody who knew that the McClellan collection could potentially hurt the church, and that's what motivated them to murder uh, or attempt to murder these three people who were involved in document collection and trading. Next, we are treated to the single most awkward family video I have ever seen in my entire life. Oh, wow. Hoffman's parents are standing side by side, just visibly nervous, because this is clearly the first time they've ever seen a camcorder. And I'm pretty sure, as faithful Mormons for their entire lives, they they think a little demon's in there recording them. Uh, yeah. We meet his, his parents, William Hoffman, who looks like a man who has never truly blinked. <laughs> I watched this a couple of times. His eyes are bulging out, and whenever he blinks, his eyelid only closes about three quarters of the way before coming mm -hmm. back up. He's got more eyeball than he does eyelid. I'm going to defend this guy because, uh, you know, even in 2021, some people are this awkward in front of a camera. So back in the 80s when these were, like, super novel, you know, I'd say he did pretty well. Yeah, but... He I'm could gonna, be a TV star. Give him a couple more years. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not let you defend this guy and say he clearly chose to get a camera so he could record his life story... And his hopes for the future. No, I think somebody was like there from the church record, like doing some kind of a segment. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that happened to him. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry that this footage exists. Because next to Bug-Eyed <laughs> Hoffman, or William, you have Lucy Hoffman, who just has the biggest and tightest afro I've ever seen on a woman. She put the perm in permanent. She, it looked like she had a Brillo pad on her head. I'll tell you I, what I thought was the most awkward thing about the whole thing. When they were ready to get started, he goes, well, let's take off our coat and get started. And then he I'm just starts going, taking his clothes why off. Why did you even? He starts taking yeah, his clothes his, off. He's on, but his, like, his, he's his not taking his coat off. And he's like, vest. he's like doing his vest. I'm like, what is happening here? <laughs> why didn't you just start without that, man? That was 
That was creepy. Oh my goodness. I, I, I don't know what is happening in this video, but it's uncomfortable. I was intrigued. <laughs> I thought it was great. Recording, recording Mormon history. I couldn't look away, but I wanted to. It's like watching the Hindenburg go down. Like, I hope he stops at his waistcoat. I hope I hope he doesn't start unbuttoning his shirt and get down to those <laughs> magic underpants. I don't need to see all of you. Listen, just because there's a camera here doesn't mean that you can't leave stuff to mystery here, Mr. Williams. Um, Did he only have one wife, or was there only one wife that was shown? I think he had about three or four hidden away in Lucy's hairdo. <laughs> if they were small enough, that would be possible. <laughs> And so this video is shown to us to give us some insight into Mark Hoffman's childhood and family life. A woman named Sandra Tanner, a Mormon researcher and critic, tells us that Hoffman was raised in a very strict and very faithful, devout Mormon home. And just that sentence alone right there took away all of my curiosity about the movie. Just that one sentence yeah. explained everything that I just saw. From the hairdos, <laughs> to the giant eyes, awkward. to the taking the jacket off. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, they should call that home video quintessential Mormon. Yeah. Hey, the 80s, for the older ladies, that hairdo was spot on. Yeah, I mean, they did really like good the, makeup. Uh, it almost seemed like these people were really from the, the 80s, huh, Scott? It, it, it's the March. It's the March Simpson. The March Simpson bun. That was very common in the o older ladies. You keep and saying of course, the bun. Ones, they had this woman's hair. hair was not in a bun. Well, it was. She had about three. It was cans. a bun afro. No, she had about three cans of hairspray. There's no bun in that. There's no any. Not any more hair in there. What 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 is on that woman's head has the structural integrity of construction grade steel. <laughs> Well, you got to remember, we put three people living in there. But there was a lot of ladies that wore that haircut back in the day. I'm not saying that they didn't. I'm just saying it's not a bun. Okay, so yeah, th that video is like the... It's like the grape juice concentrate of Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you want to get an idea of what Mormonism is, just watch that five seconds. You got it. Uh, and yep. I do also want to ask the question, how does someone become a Mormon researcher and critic? Because I think I found my calling. <laughs> we need to research that a little bit. I, I start want, a podcast about I, it. I want start. to be, starting starting in two weeks, the Rotten Righteous podcast will now uh, do nothing but tell Mormon stories and then rate them on a scale of one to ten. <laughs> um <laughs> We learned that Mark's upbringing, again, was very strict. And we also learned some interesting facts about Hoffman. Like, he became an Eagle Scout by age 14, which kind of amazes me because I thought you had to be, like, 18 before you were able to become an Eagle Scout. But Overachiever. Um, he had a dog named... Uh, I'll give you guys $5 if you can tell me what the name of this dog is. Like, I Pinky Winky remember. Tinkly. You were one-third right. The dog's full name was Makita Pepita Winky. Wow. Which, again, Mormon. That's the most Mormon name for a dog. <laughs> Is it? I don't know that. 
Listen, if someone came up to me like, hey, look, this is my dog, Pepita, uh, or Makita Pepita Winky, uh, and I'll be like, hey, are you Mormon? I'm 90% sure they're going to be like, yeah, how'd you know? Dog's I'm dang. not going to argue with you. Uh, Mark married his wife when she was almost 21. And uh, my favorite fact is after Mark had kids, his dad came over one night and saw that Mark had some dinosaur books for his kids, and this made his dad visibly upset. Because everyone knows fossils were placed in the earth by the devil. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, you're teaching them kids evolution because you're learning about dinosaurs. Excuse me, sir. I don't believe in evolution, and yet my son still has dinosaur books. I mean, this sounds like my house. I wasn't it, allowed to watch. Um... It really does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. uh, what is that? Which, which Land Before know, Time. Land Before Time. So Luke dinosaurs grew, are banned. Luke grew up my Mormon childhood. without yeah. even realizing it. So <sighs> basically we're told if a Mormon child has any different beliefs than their parents, they just hide it and go with the flow. And that's why Mark Hoffman found himself in Manchester, England in 1974 on a traditional Mormon mission questioning his faith. We're told that missions for Mormons are a, particular, are a particularly turbulent time uh, for young Latter-day Saints, as it's the first time they're away from their parents and the, the first time that they're on their own and they're in a strange place. So Hoffman's in Manchester, a, a city which has been a mission destination for the, the Mormon church since the early 1800s. And because of this, at local used bookstores, there are a lot of documents. And so this would have been a perfect location for a future antiques document dealer to get their start. Already, at the very beginning, Mark had a talent for being able to walk into old bookstores and find exactly what he was looking for. <laughs> He knew the shape, the sizes, the color. He understood. Uh, uh, he could spot a rare book from a mile away on a shelf. They, they looked a lot like books. Yeah. <laughs> Luke, you still with us? <laughs> yep. Luke's gotten oddly quiet. The. Uh... I think he's just coming to terms with the fact that he realized that he grew up in a Mormon household without realizing it. I... <laughs> he's troubled right now. <laughs> <laughs> And because he was in England, it was also possible for him to find rare texts that would be nearly impossible to find in America. And some of these rare texts were anti-Mormon literature published in the 19th century. So Hoffman began to read these anti-LDS publications and began to form his own ideas about the history of the church, mostly that it was ridiculous. One of the things that Hoffman discovered was that the church was guilty of coming up with false narratives and suppressing documents in order to hide the truth of the Mormon's history. This caused Hoffman to question everything that he knew about the church, and he came to the realization while on his mission in Manchester that the church was guilty of lying and cover-ups. He began to hide and secretly send home evidences of the church's nefarious actions, and his collection grew as his mission continued. So he had that going for him, which was nice. No, I have I, I respect Hoffman in this regard, that he at least has a head on his shoulders so that when he starts to read things that don't make sense, he's not just he like... Him. It's not just like, well, Heavenly Father demands that I have unwavering, unquestionable, or unquestionable <laughs> faith. 
So I will believe whatever the president says. He speaks to Heavenly Father, and Heavenly Father knows what's best. If I don't need to know history, it's okay. Angels told Joseph Smith to go and dig up those golden plates. Can't wait to get home to my wives. <laughs> i just like to state for the record here also that you said Heavenly Father knows best. That could almost be a TV show. They always say that. I don't know why. I don't know. It's always Heavenly Father. So we're then taken back to October 19th, 1985, three days after the bombing. Jerry, the homicide hobbit lawyer, put together a war room and started kicking back and forth theories and ideas with his team. As they did, the names of people associated with the church and the names of people involved in Mormon document dealings came to light. And basically, every one of these names were considered a suspect. Then we see Hoffman's friend and associate, Brent Metcalf, you may remember him from the first episode, recall being questioned by the police and the media about his possible involvement. Basically, it boils down to everyone was a suspect until they could be ruled out, which makes perfect sense. Alvin Rust, who was, if you remember, the rare coin dealer that financed Hoffman's purchase of the McClellan collection, was also questioned. But before too long, both Brent and Alvin were removed from the suspect's list. The same cannot be said of Shannon the Pooh Flynn. <laughs> Always question the Monopoly man. Oh, man. Yep. Shannon, Shannon Flynn went from being terrifying at the end of last episode to the, the human equivalent of, of a teddy bear. Like, this poor guy. I feel bad for him. Shannon is adamant that he had nothing to do with the bombings. But back in the 1980s, Flynn was a serious suspect for being with Hoffman whenever Mark sold documents to the LDS church. Also, he was witnessed being with Hoffman at 10 o'clock the night before his car bomb exploded. The documentary directors ask Flynn about this point blank. And again, Shannon adamantly denied being with Hoffman the night before the bombings. When asked if he saw Hoffman at all the day before the bombings took place, Shannon said that his memory was fuzzy about that day, but he may have saw Hoffman or called Hoffman during the day, but he's not sure. Uh, as he said this, his face just explodes yes. with like this massive tick where he just keeps winking over and over and over again. But you're right on the facial gestures. He was winking with his one eye. He kept going to his face. If you notice when he got started, his hand was bouncing up and down on the uh, on the armchair a little bit. Something is not truthful about what he was saying there at this point, and either I would that, love to know. Either that or we just documented a stroke. That's one <laughs> or the other. <laughs> it was I, I, I thought you gotta be kidding me. How how can he show those type of mannerisms? How in the world did he pass? I, we haven't got there. Put the lie detector, you know, with those kind of with those kind of mannerisms. I, I, I seriously no way. think that he has some sort of cerebral palsy. That's what it looked like. It looked like a cerebral palsy tick, and that it didn't affect him until later in life because he was not like this as a young man. He didn't sound like yeah, Winnie the Pooh it was during those nineteen eighty interviews. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was bad, but it was Luke. What'd was... you see? I mean, he obviously like thought Mark was the stuff, 
probably wanted to be like him. And I, I don't know. I kind of feel like he might have known some things that <clears throat> he didn't reveal. Like, I'm not saying that he's blowing people up with bombs, but I kind of have a feeling yeah. that he knew a little bit more than he let on. I don't think he has it in him to blow somebody up with a bomb. I really don't. But I do think he <laughs> might have, have some sort of information that he's not laying out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But and I think in that interview, his 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 tells his nonverbals make that apparent. As the documentary continues, we see that Jerry, the Hobbit lawyer, had suspicions about Shannon. Brent Metcalf then tells us that Shannon was real good with a butterfly knife, and was very close to Mark Hoffman the year before the bombings. I mean, in the midst of a murder investigation, I don't want to be known as the guy that's real good with a butterfly knife. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want my one mm. marketable skill to be like, hey, <laughs> he can flip butterfly knife real good. <laughs> <laughs> Shannon then gives us information about what he did for Hoffman for that year prior to the bombings. Basically, his job was to carry around a briefcase for Hoffman for them to put their money in because they were dealing with huge sums of money, making deals worth 180000 and and 300000 deals all the time. And I really, truly appreciate that the documentary recreates Shannon's words uh, uh, during this point. Because we immediately see a pudgy man that looks remarkably like a young Shannon. Oh, yeah. With a briefcase yeah. in one hand, just flipping a butterfly knife in the other hand as they're walking out, as he's walking out a door. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be messing with my briefcase, dude. And then we see this portly actor in a white button-down shirt. Getting into a blue Toyota sports car. And the real Flynn, present day Flynn, tells us that during this time in their relationship, Mark buys this fast car and the two of them would just tear down the desert road surrounding Salt Lake City. And if you're thinking, man, I would really like to see two chubby nerds in a, in a, in a, uh, a Toyota sports car flying down the roads like, like, we're, watching, uh, uh, like we're watching Top Gear then that's exactly what you get. And if you really <laughs> mm -hmm. think to yourself, you know, I wish I could see two chubby nerds in a blue sports car tearing down Salt Lake City desert roads with machine guns hanging out the window, don't you worry. This documentary's got you covered because that's what you get. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. Why, why is there a machine gun in this scene right now? Oh, don't you worry. Don't you worry about that. And it explains it right away. Not before they show you the machine gun, but right after. You see, Shannon decides that he really wants to buy an Uzi. <laughs> because, oh, really, who doesn't want an Uzi? Listen, if you are a uh, butterfly knife aficionado, an Uzi's the next logical step. That's right. <laughs> step so, one, step two. <laughs> again, we see the recreation of them stepping out of this blue Toyota sports car, both of them in, in big aviator sunglasses, uh, the guy that's playing Mark Hoffman has the Uzi. The guy that's playing Shannon has the clip, and he just hands the clip over to Hoffman and then gives him finger guns and a nod, like, go for it. And then they just shoot up this abandoned house in the middle of the desert. It's hilarious. It's like it's just out of uh, uh, Miami Vice. I, I yeah, love this. That's exactly what I was thinking. This entire, this entire scene was completely unnecessary, but wholly appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> 
I was cracking up laughing from beginning to end at this. This was very funny. Now we understand why now we understand why the Napoleon Dynamite guy directed this, what his contributions were. You have one guy that's doing all the serious stuff, and then you have Napoleon Dynamite over there directing uh, Miami Mormon Vice out in the desert. You know, this documentary is just not going to be believable unless we have an Uzi blowing up a house and a little bit of speed. So, Shannon is brought in to be uh, uh, investigated, and keep in mind, this is why I don't think Shannon has a real mean bone in his body. Because he goes in there and he is just the most helpful witness you could possibly be. He volunteers information about his machine gun, about his butterfly knife collection, about what him and Mark do out in the desert. He is just the most helpful person in the whole world. So, fast forward to Shannon Flynn being arrested at 27 for possession of an unlicensed firearm. I... <laughs> I feel so bad for him because he's just this homely, chubby little dork. We all know people like this. You know, Bilbo says that he gets the impression of Shannon that he like wants to be somebody he's not. <laughs> I was like, I totally get that vibe out of him as well. well like I can't... He... He does all these cool things and fancy things, and probably because he wants to be like Mark. But well, he's, I don't think he wants to be Mark. like Mark. I think he's going out in the desert with that gun and like reenacting Scarface. Like I think he yeah. he does it to be tough, but he's never that kind of person <laughs> that would take it to the real world. You know what I mean? Yeah, he likes to imagine himself as that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one thing to go out in the desert with nobody and be like, "Say hello to my little friend," and shoot an abandoned building. <laughs> It's another one to blow up people's chests and wives. But when they search Flynn's house, they find the Uzi, but they also find what they call evidence uh, pertaining to bomb manufacturing. Now, this is what really bugs me about this right now, because we see this happen twice in this documentary, where they are so desperate to find the bomber that they ignore the obvious right in front of their face. Like, right now, with just what you've shown me and who this dude is, yes, he is awkward. Yes, he has a gun, but he is not a killer. But they say that because they found a book called The Anarchist's Cookbook that has information on how to build bombs in it, that uh, he is clearly the suspect. Scott, before this documentary, have you heard of The Anarchist's Cookbook? Yes. Okay. I have too. It was a big thing for outsiders in my high school. I'll tell you who yeah. read the Anarchist Cookbook and, and studied it are kids, one, who were just curious about how things worked, or two, people that, again, wanted to seem like they're really edgy and really dangerous, but weren't. It's mm -hmm. like the easiest, most innocent way to rebel is getting a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook. Yeah. And so now that we've both admitted to knowing of that, that makes us suspects until we're not. Of what? We don't know yet. I mean, you boil it down, the Anarchist Cookbook is nothing more than a novelty item. It mm -hmm. I mean, it really is. Am I wrong about this? No. Was it, in the, so. was it in the 80s, though? I mean, it could have been it's, more serious in the 80s. Around. I think it came out in like the 60s or 70s. But even when I was a kid, it was kind of taboo. And that's why it was so interesting. You know, like the older people would probably take it more seriously the, than the younger people. 
But at this point, it just doesn't. Scott, I, I would I would uh, strongly advise against you searching for the Anarchist Cookbook. <laughs> just just, just, in, just in case. Hey, hold up. <laughs> but let me tell you, there there were there were two things I could look at. The number one was the download, which I avoided and just went to information on Amazon. Uh, first published in 1971, book containing instructions for the manufacture of explosions, rudimentary telecommunications, freaking de- telecommunications, freaking devices, and related weapons as well as instructions for the home manufacture of illicit drugs, including LSD. Basically, 89% report liking this book. (laughs) But honestly, it was nothing but novelty. That's what I'm saying is, yeah, it contains all that stuff, but you got it because, oh, you're you're bad for a moment. You have a book. You're not going to actually do anything with it. Uh, But the police really feel at this point that Flynn is their man. And uh, even the chief of police at this point is convinced that Shannon Flynn is behind this. And while Flynn is in custody, they get a warrant to search Shannon's storage locker in hopes that the locker is where Mm. he manufactured all these bombs. They found nothing. Right. And they were so disappointed. No, and, and at this point, I'm... 100% 100% convinced, even with his little winky face thing, mm-hmm. that he is, he was very, he was a naive kid who didn't know enough to get a lawyer when he was first taken into custody. Yep. And he was friends with a man who was becoming increasingly wealthy, and he had money to buy things that nerdy kids want to buy, like guns and butterfly knives that they saw in their comic books and in the movies. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, an outsider like Flynn is going to have an interest in these things, but an interest doesn't translate to murder. (laughs) And as, as Luke was saying, Jerry the lawyer hits the nail on the head when he says that Flynn comes across as a person who wants to be somebody that he is not. That he wants to be like James Bond. So he has these things to live his fantasy, but at the end of the day, he's not dangerous. So eventually Flynn is released on a $50,000 bond. He passes a lie detector test, and the search of his uh, storage unit doesn't reveal any further incriminating evidence uh, that says Flynn was involved in the bombings. So basically they have to write Flynn off as a suspect. And Jerry, the Hobbit lawyer tells us that they didn't have anyone else. As Flynn is being written off as a suspect, Mark Hoffman is slowly getting better in the hospital. His condition improves. He goes from serious to satisfactory. Then we have a witness who worked in the judge's building, a man with a mustache that would only rival Tom Selleck's. And this witness says (laughs) that he saw a young man in a green letterman's jacket loitering around the building the day of the bombings with a strange package. So, now the investigators are trying to find this strange, green-jacketed guy. And Brent Metcalf recognizes right away that this is the type of jacket that Mark Hoffman wore around town. Uh-oh. And this kind of threw me for a loop because I was suspicious of Mark at the beginning of the first episode and then I was like, yeah, Mark's not doing anything. And now I'm back like, what, Mark? I, I guess that's why it's a good documentary. 
If it was just straightforward from the beginning and you figured it all out in the first five minutes, it'd be a long three hours. Yep. So Jerry the lawyer goes back to his war room and starts working on securing a search warrant of Mark Hoffman's house. Before too long, Mark Hoffman is released from the hospital as the two victims are buried. The present-day Dory Hoffman, Mark's wife, is remembering what it was like when Mark came home. She had hoped that this whole thing would just blow over and slowly but surely Mark and her and their kids would just get their normal lives back. But she does say that she knew that something was wrong with Mark, but she couldn't say what it was precisely during those early days after her husband returned from the hospital. When the police come to search the Hoffman residence, Dory is in disbelief when she learns that her husband is a suspect in the case. During the search, no paraphernalia related to the bombs was turned up, but they did find a green letterman's jacket. At that point, Jerry the Hobbit lawyer was convinced that Hoffman was the bomber. However, the chief of police was not satisfied with Hoffman's, or Hoffman's motive for the bombing. Basically, there wasn't one. And add to the fact that anyone who graduated from the local high school or, or had access to a second-hand clothing store around town could have purchased that letterman's jacket. It when it comes down to it, uh, the search of Mark's home turned up a bunch of documents that nobody but an, anti or an antiques document dealer would care about and a jacket. They had nothing on Mark. So the investigators are suspicious of Mark. They have some information about some different business dealings that Mark had his hands in, but they had no connection, and they had a lot of work to do and a lot of leads to look through with these business dealings to find if there was a connection between Hoffman and these three bombs. We're then taken back in time to... New York City, 1984, one year before the bombings, and we meet my personal favorite character in the entire documentary, a man <laughs> by the name of Justin Schiller, who is, and I mean no disrespect by saying this, and uh, I can't think of any other way to say this, uh, Justin Schiller is the stereotypical New York Jewish man. With the most <laughs> unstereotypical New York Jewish man's name. <laughs> I mean, you know, I knew he was the character that I had, you know, seen before somewhere, and that 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 is what I was thinking. I just couldn't put my finger on it. I mean, when you hear the name Justin Schiller, the first thing that pops into your mind isn't a guy that's you know eating at a deli somewhere with a pocket full of nasal decongestion or congestant and a, and a sweater on, even though it's 86 degrees outside, because I might just catch a cold. But that's what you get. <laughs> See, Justin owns a gallery, and he deals in not so much Mormon documents, but rare antique uh, Americana uh, and historical documents. And he first meets Mark in 1984, and... He learns that Mark is well-respected in the Mormon church because of all the documents that he's finding. And at first, Mark and Justin's relationship wasn't about Mormon documents, but they're finding rare first editions and other historical things. As a matter of fact, the first documents that Justin remembers Mark finding is this pamphlet called Oath of a Free Man, which, if it is legitimate, would be 
the first printed or the first originally, excuse me, the first printed material in colonial America. The very first thing ever printed in the colonies. Now, Justin looks at it and he thinks that it's real and he sends it off to be authenticated for Mark Hoffman. And Justin Schiller at this point in time, he's like, now listen here, when I sent that off to be authenticated, I was a little bit nervous thinking I was going to have to foot the whole bill. I cannot tell you my sciatic was acting up. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> and I was like, listen here, Mr. Hoffman, baby, uh, uh, uh you realize that uh, for a 9% commission, I'm sure shelling out a lot of dinero here. But then Hoffman, oh, what a man, she said, don't you worry about that. We're going to give you 50%. I had an asthma attack right then and there. But once I recovered, oh, everything was great again. <laughs> you got the script in front of you, don't you? I mean, that was an exaggeration. <laughs> So yeah, uh, Justin Schiller really likes Mark because, according to Schiller, Hoffman is very generous and offers a 50% commission on the Freeman's Oath pamphlet. And so, from that point on, whenever Hoffman would come to New York, Schiller would roll out the red carpet. Now, Shannon the Pooh Flynn would go with Mark on some of these trips. And Shannon tells us that when Mark Hoffman went to New York, it was basically Mormons gone wild. Mark Hoffman is doing things in New York he would never do in Salt Lake City. Now, I'm thinking, what's he doing? Drugs? Prostitutes? What's going on? Nah, he's just drinking. He's just drinking a bunch. Whiskey. But Shannon acts like... Uh, <laughs> like he's he's reenacting an episode of Narcos every time he goes to New York. Just... <laughs> he's like, mounds of cocaine were everywhere. No, no, that's not what he says. He's just like, he was drinking. <laughs> I, feel like was, I feel like just as we believe Shannon was uh, not giving the whole truth, I, I feel like that may have been the case. Uh, uh, well, no, I mean... In, in this story as well. You think? Because Shannon tells us that uh, Mark, when he was in New York, he would just get obliterated with alcohol. And Shannon wants to be emphatically clear that he did no drinking. But he also <laughs> raises his eyebrows about 300 times. Not like in a tick mm-hmm. way, but like in a way where uh, a man-child wants to say that he was drinking, but he doesn't want his mom to find out about it. <laughs> and he tells us true a, story. He tells us a story about uh, no that eyebrow raise. I I now am a hundred percent on Shannon Flynn's side. He is the most adorable man baby in the entire world. <laughs> He is. Doesn't mean he's not lying, though. I'm just saying, he that was absolutely hilarious, <laughs> and it redeemed yeah. him in my eyes. But Flynn remembers a time in New York where Mark drank 15 or 16 double shots. Now, here's the thing. You know, Scott, you were right. Like, how's his memory fuzzy that he doesn't remember the day before the bombings? I don't think he remembered mm-hmm. this right, because if a man takes 15 or 16 double shots, that's 32 shots of of liquor he would be dead 32 shots of liquor will get you dead a lot quicker i mean i'm just saying that's alcohol poisoning easy 
Yes. So I don't think that that part's true. But he says that Mark drank 15 or 16 double shots and claimed that he was not drunk. And Schiller's, Schiller goes, Oh, that's Meshuggana! You've got to be drunk! <laughs> Marky, baby, stand up! Be a mention stand up for me! And Mark stands up and he's like, Now do me another favor! Don't do fast! Not too fast! Because I don't want to draft! I don't want to catch a chill! But walk around the table for me! One or two times, Marky, please! Just let me see what's going on! And Mark does, and he does not wobble. Mormons wobble, but they don't fall down. Um, (laughs) 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 All right, so we lost Luke for right now, and maybe if we can get him back, then we'll continue. But I don't feel like doing this for much longer, so I'm going to keep going. Let's knock it out. So Schiller, again, makes Mark stand up and walk around the table. He doesn't wobble. And uh, he actually claims that it was physically impossible for him to get drunk. But Shannon does say that at the end of the story is uh, the two of them going back to their hotel room where Mark runs to the bathroom and immediately, and I quote, puked himself green, which I've never heard of before. But as an Irishman, I take offense to. (laughs) Do you? I'm just saying, if that's not a slur against Irish people, I don't know what is. Megan just sent a message. said, Luke said to finish without him, his internet isn't working. Mark starts to live this kind of double life in New York. He would be, or this kind of double life. When he was in New York, he'd be flashing cash and being this big showy businessman who drank a lot. And back in Salt Lake City, he would just live this quiet, normal, sober Mormon life. And... Although he tried to hide it, and although Mark may not have been drinking at home, his wife did notice that Mark was having an increasingly strong desire to own flashy and fancy and expensive things. He became obsessed with status. He wanted people to know that he was an important person. And soon his business deals became really murky and kind of shady. And he'd be going on these trips across the country, or across the country, and there'd be times when the, the family had lots of money, and times when they had very little money, and, and people would start to call on the phone and be upset because they didn't get paid or a deal didn't come through. And so Dory Hoffman is starting to get concerned by the early fall of 1985. But the police were still not convinced that Hoffman was a suspect because, yes, he had some shady dealings, but he had money out there. He didn't have the money in person, but all of his debt was going to be covered by this big sale of the Oath of Freeman doctrine, or or the Oath of Freeman document. They were going to sell that for $1.5 million dollars. And that would clear his debt. So he didn't have motive, at least in their minds, for these bombings. But even though he didn't have motive, Mark Hoffman was their only suspect. Mm-hmm. So they kept trying to, to trying to figure out something uh, about Hoffman. And he was still their primary suspect, even though Mark Hoffman did things like pass a lie detector test and... and 
all these searches didn't come up with anything other than this green letterman's jacket and people were angry at the police right now because of their treatment of Mark mm-hmm. Hoffman. Brett or Brent Metcalf is upset thinking that that they're basically crucifying Hoffman without having any actual proof. Uh, Hoffman's neighbors believe that he is innocent and they still can't find motive. All they have to connect him is this jacket, but he is a wealthy businessman. He has no reason to kill these people. He has no reason to try to cover anything up in a car bomb. What would be the motive behind it? And public opinion was in Mark's favor at this point in time. So investigators were being pressured by the public and by the evidence to move on from Mark. But before writing off Hoffman as a suspect, the investigators go through the evidence one last time. And they come across a piece of paper from a business called Cox and Clark's Engravings. (laughs) And the, the name at the top of the paper was Mark Hansen. So they call Cox and Clark's up and pretend to be Mark Hoffman calling for a receipt on his taxes. And when the investigators get the receipt, they find out that Mark purchased some plates under the name of Mike Hansen. And if you remember from last week's episode, Mark was famous for selling these rare desert currencies. Desert was the Mormon state before the the country said, no, we're Mm -hmm. not doing that. Um, Well, he bought plates so he could counterfeit antique money. So this turns the investigation around, and they start looking at the documents that Mark had sold, and they want to see if they are all forgeries or if it's just this desert currency. Because if Mark has been passing off forgeries as real, then he has a motive to commit murder, to cover up the fact that he's been selling hundreds of thousands of of forged documents as if they were real. So they start to investigate the Salamander letter. The letter that said that Joseph Smith wasn't led to the golden plates by an angel, but was led to the golden plates by a big white salamander. And they send the Salamander letter to the FBI to determine whether it is real or a forgery. And in addition to this, they bring in a forensic document investigator named George Throckmorton, who has a nightmare of a last name. George Throckmorton hates people, mm-hmm. but he loves old pieces of paper. And his, He reminds me of you a little bit. Yeah. He'd probably die, too, if someone commanded him to live. Um, That's exactly, he would. And basically, George Throckmorton's approach to determining the validity of any document is if someone brings them and set, or brings him a document and says, this is real, he tries to prove that it's not. And if somebody brings him a document and says, this isn't real, he tries to prove that it is. <laughs> Good for him. I have never met... It's your alter ego. I've never met somebody that is just so anti-everything. <laughs> so... It's made him successful, though. George is brought on, and he begins to look into those who authenticated the Salamander letter in the first place, and he learns that one of the authenticators was not a document authenticator at all, but was rather a historian. And this makes George suspicious, because why was a historian authenticating documents? 
But and wasn't he also a member uh, of of the LDS? Yeah, but why would? But that doesn't really matter because if you're a member of the LDS, you don't want this document getting out. You don't want this document being real. Yeah, I've got stuff to say about that. Just a moment. George realizes that there's something weird happening here, but he also is smart enough to know that he's a Mormon, and so there's a conflict of interest. So George Mm -hmm. does the smart thing and hires another forensic document investigator. I imagine the only other one in the world, a man by the name of William Flynn. No relation to our man-baby, Sharon the Pooh. <laughs> you see, William's perfect, because he's a non-practicing Catholic. He ain't Mormon. He, he has no horse in this race. And so he's the perfect guy to come in here to investigate these old pieces of paper. And uh, so George and William get to work trying to find just one flaw in the Salamander letter and prove that it wasn't produced in 1830, but at any other later date. If they could prove that this salamander letter was made in 1890 instead of 1830, then it would not be authentic. Then it would be some form of forgery. That's all they had to do was find one thing that proved this salamander letter to be a fake. Fast forward to December 1985, two months after the bombing. The Oath of the Free Man document finally gets back to uh, uh, Scholler from the authenticators. And they run all sorts of fancy-smancy tests and determine that it is real. And then the FBI sends the Salamander letter back to Utah and says that it is genuine. So basically, the investigators are devastated. They thought they were getting some headway, but their forging theory just isn't panning out. Meanwhile, Hoffman's at home who, according to his wife at this point in time, was modeling his persona after J.R. from Dallas. And I don't know what that means, because I'm 29 years old. Um, (laughs) Yes, big 80s hit, Dallas. But I assume J.R. was some sort of bad guy. I remember somebody shot him. That was a deal. Um, Oh, yeah. That was a a whole summer wait. Who shot J.R.? But uh, yeah, he was a lying, conniving, cheating scoundrel. Yeah, great. That's a great person to model yourself after. But uh, uh, Hoffman is is reveling in the fact that he's on the news day after day, and that he keeps being found innocent of forgery, and that's being reported, and he's just loving the attention at this point in time. But George still isn't willing to give up on the Salamander letter. And he and William continue to study it. And after looking at the paper for over a hundred hours, he started to notice that he needs to rethink his life. (laughs) That would have been a great conclusion at that point, wouldn't it? He looked around and said, I've been staring at this one piece of paper for a hundred hours. I need to stop. But he also found out that some of the writing on it, or some of the ink on it, when looked at through a microscope, was cracked, whilst other parts of it were smooth. And that gets him thinking. So, they get a whole bunch of other authentic Mormon documents that the church had in their vault since before Hoffman was even born. And they start to see 
that on the authentic Mormon documents, all of the writing is always smooth, and on Mark Hoffman's documents, all of the writing is cracked. Well, the investigators figure out how they can tell one of Hoffman's forgeries from the real deal. So the investigators start looking at other engravers where Hoffman could have bought plates to help in his forgery. And they found two places, Utah Engraving and Debuzak Printing. At Debuzak, they learn that a man named Mike Hansen asked to have a plate made of the original Oath of the Free Man, which had been copied down into textbooks and things like that, but an original was never found. And as smart as Hoffman is, he's really dumb. Because he pays mm-hmm. for this plate to be made in cash, but he's a few bucks short. And so, Hansen pays for the remaining $2 that he needed $2. to buy this plate using a check that had his real name, Mark Hoffman, on it. And so, this $1.5 million piece of paper, this Oath of a Free Man uh, uh, document, this pamphlet, which was going to be displayed at the base of the Statue of of Liberty, and fold all these nuclear scientists that specialize in authenticating documents, turned out to be a forgery. And here's the thing. If Mark Hoffman wasn't going to get that $1.5 million, then his debt became a big problem. And what are you going to do if you are hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and your your whole scheme is unraveling? Well, you're going to kill two people that can incriminate you, and then you're going to blow yourself up because no one's going to go, oh, well, clearly he bombed those two people and then bombed himself. Oh, and by the way, the McClellan collection never existed. It was something that Mark Hoffman made up. All the documents in it that Mm -hmm. incriminated the church, they were made up. His car uh, and all the documents in the trunk that they said was the McClellan collection at first, it was just a bunch of blank old paper that he used to make forgeries. So in the end, Hoffman lied to his friends, swindled people with forgeries out of hundreds of thousands of dollars... They prove that he is a master forger, and his entire house of cards begins to crumble around him. And that's the end of the episode. Here at Rotten or Righteous, we use the patent-pending SEPS scale to rate anything that we watch here. SEPS, of course, is an acronym, uh, and it's a Greek word for stinky snake. And it stands for scriptural accuracy, entertainment value... Uh, parental control, and should you watch it. Now, because this documentary isn't really faith-based, it has to do with Mormonism, but it's not faith-based, we're not going to use the first category. So instead of out of 100 points, our rating will be out of 75. And also because Luke, uh, his internet failed, he's not going to be here to give give his rating of the uh, uh, second episode. So it'll just be me and Scott, so... Take that with a grain of salt. But, to begin, entertainment value. On a scale of 1 to 5, Scott, were you entertained by this? 
I actually was. I was far more interested in this episode of the documentary than I was the first one. Um, kind of felt like they got into, well, some of the investigative part, which I enjoyed a lot more. Uh, I was very entertained, and I gave it a 22. All right. I gave it a 20. To be honest, what got me last week was uh, all the Mormonism. But there wasn't a lot of Mormonism in here. Mm -hmm. uh, it was mostly just uh, typical run-of-the-mill true crime stuff. It was still entertaining. It's still... Uh, kept me on the edge of my seat from start to finish. I was thrown for a loop when the forensic uh, document investigators discovered how they could tell a forgery from a, an, an original document. And so, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I gave it a 20. Uh, what about parental control? Well, I didn't think that it, I didn't think this one was as difficult as it was last week. I thought they threw, showed the the two bodies in particular last week that you got a good picture of. Uh, Mark wasn't, I, I didn't see it as bad this week, so, but there's still some parental control issues. Uh, I gave it an 18 this week, which is higher than what I did last week. I didn't see it as difficult with parental control this week as I did last. You know, that's funny because you, I, I saw uh, when Mark was getting out of the hospital, his hands got me again where yeah. you could see they were yeah. bruised and bloody and he was missing the tips of his fingers. Um, they show a few different angles at the Christensen corpse in his office. You actually see Kathy Sheets' uh, body for the first time in this episode. You didn't see it in the first episode. And I also had to knock a few t points off because there was uh, three swear words that were used. Still much more tame than anything else that I think you're going to find on yeah. TV. And it wasn't enough to knock it too many points. I gave it a, a 17. And then finally, should you watch, is there any merit to this uh, episode? I, I came up I came up on this score this week too. I know last week I had it hovering right around the middle. I think I, well, I gave it a 13 last week. Uh, I came up to an 18 this week. I uh, Like I said, I enjoyed this one a lot more. And I think, I think there might be... I think the folks that would like to see this are probably a wider variety than what I initially thought. So I wanted to come up on this as well. Uh, so I gave it an 18 this week. All right. I gave it a 23. And 20 of those points came directly from the recreation of Shannon Flynn and Mark Hoffman shooting their gun. Uh, that was fantastic. Everyone needs to see that. Uh, it was great. And I'm going to go home and just watch that part of the documentary over again. So 20 of those points came from that. The other three were just from a good documentary. If you got hooked from the first one, then you should definitely see it uh, all the way through. All righty. So there you have it where everything is added up. Scott gave it a 77% approval rating, and I gave it an 80%. Averaged that together to a 79%. And according to our grading scale, that means that episode two of... Uh, a murder among Mormons is a 79, which is a B plus. And as always, we use Carleton University's grading scale. Go Ravens! And um, <laughs> <laughs> I get you every week. <laughs> and you will too. It's so funny. It's so funny. And that is going to do it for this episode of Rotten Righteous. Remember to say your prayers and obey your parents. If you need to get a hold of us, email us at rottenrighteous at gmail.com. Uh, if you 
want to follow us on Facebook, we would appreciate that. You can follow us at uh, facebook.com slash rottenorrighteous. Visit our website, rottenorrighteous.com. And I think that's it. But, Scott, before we go, you know, we moved about a year ago. And uh, when we got down here, I spent a lot of time and effort and money child-proofing my house. Yeah. My son keeps finding a way to get in every day. (laughs) Good night, everybody. Anyways, what would make you think a goat would like to be blue? I don't know. I mean, maybe it wants to be different than all the other goats. People die, humans dye their hair blue, so. That's true. Well, let me ask you a question. How do we know that maybe this goat's just not choking? <laughs> Got it in early this week, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> there you have it folks scott's one stupid comment left in the podcast it's been a while it's been a while since i've had to do this but there you go i best just shut her down now i'm out of i'm out of chances but you know what that's what happens you turn blue scott me and luke uh have been meaning to talk to you about your future here at the podcast You ever seen a goat choke? <laughs> I, I can't even I can't even imagine in her mind what's going on with him as he's just blowing stuff off. And the other thing that's fascinating is the room that she's not allowed in that she said, Well, it's just another room that uh we we don't have to we don't have to go in. Wasn't that in the first episode? I don't know. Uh, that she talked about that. Yeah. But I think that might have been in the third episode. Crazy stuff. Maybe. She watched the third episode first. I tell you, bitch, you'd be mad. (laughs) I can't believe you did. Yeah, because that was not in the first episode, Scott. Yes, it was. No, it wasn't. And I don't know if it was in the third episode because I haven't watched it. Before moving on, they need to figure out who Mark Hansen is and how he's related to Hoffman. So they call Cox and (laughs) Cartwright. So they call Cox and Clarks up and pretend to be Mark Hoffman. Call-